hello everybody. Welcome to the latest Smart Leverage podcast. Thank you so much for giving up some time to have a listen. Last month, I spent a week with my wife on holiday. We went to Zellamsee in Austria for a much needed week of rest and recuperation. And we were very lucky because although it was the third week in September, we had brilliant weather for the entire week, which made everything that we did in the mountains, on the lakes and so on, extremely enjoyable. And we walked and we went uh, on hired bicycles and went on cycle rides and we had nice food and actually really did unwind. It's only by getting really away from home sometimes, isn't it, that you can really relax properly. Then earlier in the month, there was a a magical excursion of a sorts when Paul Prager, Chris Payne and I got on a train and went up to meet up with our friend Stuart in Cumbria. Stuart's been living in Cumbria for a number of years now. And each year, the four of us get together. We're a long time old magical friends. We all get together for two or three days of concentrated magical performance, critiquing and just good fun really we call ourselves with our tongues planted firmly in our cheeks the ccc the cumbrian conjurers collective or if you prefer the o ccc which stands for the occasional cumbrian conjurers collective and um it's only a bit of fun really but we do get an awful lot out of these meetings Uh, and it's quite interesting really because We don't just sort of lock ourselves away in a room for three days because I think that would become stale and boring and even though we're really good friends, would stretch our relationships perhaps um, a little bit further than we might want them to be. So instead, we go out, we go on walks, we go to cafes. Wherever we are, we're still talking about magic, whether it's driving along in Stuart's car or whether we're sitting in a cafe having a coffee or on a train ride or whatever we're doing, We tend to still be talking about magic, but the different environments lend to different combinations of of conversation. Sometimes all four of us are talking together, but we went on a walk, for instance, and we ended up splitting up into two twos. And the conversations were then very different between the, the pairs of people as we walked along. And there's something about walking, isn't there, that that kind of stimulates your brain and gives you often, I think, a clarity of thought that sitting in a room for hours on end simply can't do. We do that as well, of course. We we do a lot of magic. And and I think another good thing about this is that we, when we have one of these annual meetings coming up, we all work towards it. We all get together and practice up material to show everybody else, or we all we all think up questions that we want to discuss, things to do generally with magic. And and gradually over the, the days that we're in Cumbria, all these things come out, the magic gets performed. And, and because we've deliberately are putting ourselves out there to be critiqued, not criticised necessarily, but critiqued, it means that often the magic that one of us will do, some information or ideas will come from one of the other people in the group or perhaps everybody else in the group. And the person who has done the trick really does feel that they've moved on another stage and has improved it. And we all, every time that we do this, we always all come away with something positive, something that we are pleased, that we showed everybody else and that we've been able to move on further as a result with it. So we feel very lucky to be able to do this. It's nice because... We are obviously all good friends, but also the, the, there are no egos in the room. Nobody's trying to outdo anybody else. 
nobody's trying to put anybody else down we have a lot of fun a lot of laughs um, but we also get a lot said and done and and it's extremely refreshing and we feel very lucky to have a group like this where we trust everybody and where we can we can do these things to the fullest possible extent it's sometimes said that magic basically takes place in the minds of our spectators in other words what you and i do when we perform it's not real magic is it we all know it isn't we set up a situation and we go through a series of motions or activities which makes it look like something magical has happened but really it hasn't we've simply created the illusion that it has and the strength of the magic trick is often helped by the way that the spectators either interpret it in their own heads or how they remember it afterwards. I mean, we've all had that experience where somebody will describe to us a trick they've seen another magician do, and it's an absolute miracle, and they were desperate to tell you all about it. And as they're describing the trick, you know what the trick is. You probably recognise the, the, the plot. But the way that the, the spectator describes it is often an embellished or truncated or a plot if you like that's been made more impossible than it really was because the magic has been increased in its impossibility in his own head and so when he bring when he then tries to tell somebody else that is the real version as far as he's concerned of what he saw even though it wasn't so um if the magic is taking place in a spectator's heads does that mean sort of thinking slightly logically further on from this that if you're doing magic and there's nobody there to watch, that there isn't actually any magic. Um, and it's a bit of a funny thing to say, really, isn't it? But it's a bit like the old thing by, you know, if, a, if in the middle of a wood, a tree falls down in the middle of the night and there's nobody there to hear it, does it make a noise? Uh, and yes, of course it does. But nobody's there to hear it. So therefore, does that noise exist? Well, Yes, it does, but you could argue that it doesn't because there's nobody there to hear it. Well, this is a similar thing. If there's nobody there to watch the magic and to interpret it and to then retell what they've seen to somebody else, has there actually been no magic? When you practice your tricks in front of a mirror, say, you're not actually creating magic, are you? What you're doing is you're going through a series of moves and, and possibly practicing a presentation but you're not actually creating magic as such. It's only when you then show it to somebody and they go, oh my goodness, how on earth is that done? And then they start to create in their own minds, the spectators, sort of fantastic ideas about how the thing might be working. It's then that the magic is actually created in their brains and when they then go and tell others about what they've seen. But I think it's quite funny that because in a way, I'd never thought about this before, that if there's nobody to watch it, does magic really exist? And you could argue that, no, it doesn't. It's just a series of manoeuvres. And that the only time that magic really exists is when a layperson sees it, appreciates it, and then goes and tells somebody else about it. In my September podcast, I was able to announce that finally the new Mark Leverage Magic website had been launched. And now a month on, I can say that... Uh, Generally speaking, it's all working rather well. In fact, I've had some very nice comments from quite a lot of my customers saying how much they like the new site and are hopefully are finding it easy to find their way around. 
it seems ridiculous that it did take so long to to get to the point where it was ready and there have been one or two little teething problems which I've now I think sorted out in order to make sure that it runs as smoothly as possible but it's it's been very interesting it's been a learning curve for me as well because although I didn't design the site I am content managing it so and I'm putting the content in and changing the content as necessary and so I have had to learn it's a WordPress site which I hadn't done had anything to do with before so I'm having to learn all that which I've now done and uh, and I'm starting to learn the various things that it will do and what I can do with it in order to make the experience of coming to the Mark Leverage Magic website as website as interesting for you guys as I can possibly make it. So I'm very happy about it. I'm really glad that uh, it's it's now actually there. And uh, if you haven't been to visit it yet, um, please do go and see what it's like. It's very different from my last site and hopefully you'll find it um, a lot easier to get around. And if you want to join eClub Pro, and eClub Pro is very much at the core of the new website, then it's it's very easy to do so. And for just £10 a month, you can have access to a huge amount of content which is on that new website and which is available to you once you have a username and password. So there's lots of stuff that you can't get at unless you are a member. Once you are a member, the gates really do open and you will be amazed at just how much material, interesting stuff, routines, advice, ideas. There's so much for you to enjoy there. So please do go and have another look if you haven't already done so and see what you think. One of the things that every now and again rears its ugly head in the magic world is the subject of magical exposure. And I suppose effectively there are three different types of magical exposure. The first type and the one that the magicians get particularly irritated by is the one where somebody will go on to a mass media outlet such as the television, online or possibly even on radio and will gratuitously give away how tricks are done. Um, this is not usually in the, in the process of performance. This is just they say, here's a trick, right? Do the trick. Now this is how it's done. And that's, that sort of deliberate nature is the thing that gets magicians, I think, very riled. And then there's, but there's an, another type of exposure as well, isn't there, which is accidental magical exposure. And this is caused by people who are just under-rehearsed or who are not technically up to the job of performing the tricks that they're trying to perform. And in doing them badly, what they're doing is they are giving away, inadvertently admittedly, to their audiences either how part of it is done or indeed how the whole thing is achieved. And that's a form of exposure too, isn't it? Because you've given it away. And then the third type of exposure is the, the sort of cod exposure. And now an example of this would be the silk to egg. Classic routine, you show a silk, you tuck it into your hand, it changes into an egg. You then explain that actually it's a hollow egg and that you take the silk out of it. And you show that you, you put the silk into the air, into inside the egg and that's how it turns into the egg. But the difference is that at the end, you then take the, apparently the same egg and you crack it over a glass and it's become a real egg and the silk has gone. So that's a sort of presentational ploy, really, isn't it? Where you're using, apparently exposing a trick, but actually you're not really. And in fact, in many ways, spectators are left even though the joke of it is that the first part of the trick is actually done with a hollow egg, 
that's not the point because that that theory anyway appears to be blown out of the water by the ending of the trick but it's the it's the deliberate exposure of magical secrets which magicians get particularly upset about and i, I think the reason for this is is because it's it's like saying hang on a minute what right does this individual who's doing the exposing of the tricks what right does he have to take perhaps ideas or routines that you do what right does he have to go and explain those to other people now we all know that secrets to magic tricks they're not the whole picture are they how you present them whether they're entertaining whether people enjoy you and your presentation and your personality all these things of course come into it but for often for lay people the one thing they want to know is how did you do that and so when somebody comes along so oh, well you do it like this then it seems like a complete uh, cop out in order just for a cheap bit of notoriety perhaps to explain how tricks are done the thing is though i've always felt that although it's not great and it's a bit irksome when somebody does that especially on a large scale say like when the masked magician years ago on television had a whole series of things where he purported to give away the secrets of classic tricks and so on and so forth well that's not good but the truth of the matter is that in my view anyway actually lay people aren't that interested in how tricks are done most of the time they don't actually care that much so when somebody gives it away they're begging oh yeah oh right okay and then they probably forget about it. The only people who are going to remember it are possibly either those people who are absolutely obsessed with finding out how magic is done. And there are some of those out there. Let's face it, we've all met them when we do shows. Or those people who have actually a half an interest in magic and think, oh, that's clever. I wonder what else I can find out. And sometimes that can lead, that exposure can lead to somebody getting involved in magic. So you could say that type of exposure has had a positive influence in that particular example but generally speaking i think the worst one is the one where people are inadvertently giving on a consistent basis giving away how tricks are done by not doing them very well that's the one that is totally avoidable it's it's not deliberate it is accidental but it's actually almost worse than somebody who's consciously going out and saying all right this is how it's done this is somebody who thinks they're doing a good job and actually they're not they need to practice more or they need to get some critique from somebody else watching them so that they don't inadvertently give away secrets. Um, because in a way, I think that's doing magic more damage because not only do they give away the secret, but they make magicians look cack-handed as if they don't know what they're doing, uh, as if they're almost incompetent, which is an image. Quite frankly, I don't know about you, but it's not one that I want. Ever since I was young, I've tried to invent magic or reform it into something different and it's actually as you get older it gets more difficult for a number of reasons one reason being that if you've already if you like attacked a lot of the plots that interest you and you've found what you consider to be really good versions of say a book test or whatever it might be then the motivation to go on and search unless there are commercial reasons why you need to find a different way of doing something um, normally you tend to stick if it works and it works well you tend to stick with what you've got so that's one plot that you may not go back to and so gradually you're sort of fishing around in a diminishing pool of possibilities 
so the, there's that aspect of of being creative which is a bit tricky as you get older but the other thing and possibly worse is when you get your life gets really busy not just with magic but with everything else that's in your life whether it's job family social other other social activities and so on and it's difficult sometimes to find time to be creative because i don't think creativity is something that um, you can kind of turn on and off you know you it's a bit difficult sometimes if you have a limited amount of time Let, let's say one evening you think right what should I do? I'm going to play around with some magic then sometimes although you have a little bit of time you may not be in the right mood or there may it may be that everything you start to to do or to play with doesn't really come to anything it's all very frustrating and you end up wasting effectively a couple of hours perhaps getting nowhere with anything and that can be very counterproductive. So what I try, have tried to do over the years is to create lots of small amounts of creative thinking time. Time when my brain is not absorbed with anything else. And one of the things that I, that I do, and I may have talked about this, I'm fairly sure I have before, is that I like to go through ideas while I'm driving up the motorway. Um, obviously, yes, I've got to concentrate on the road, but... Basically, there's a lot of spare brain space and it allows me to go through plots of tricks to think up topics for various things like the podcast that I'm doing now. I often come up with topics for that while I'm driving along. But the point about it is that I can't do anything else other than drive up the motorway. And if it's a long journey, there's loads of thinking time. And I just have my uh, a one touch recorder on the seat next to me, press the button, record my thoughts as soon as I have them and then download all the sound files when I get home, give them a title and then go back through them. And, and it's amazing the number of things that positive things that can come out of that by actually using time that otherwise would be dead space. Now, people, for instance, who have a regular commute to work, maybe a half an hour, three quarter of an hour longer drive could do this every day if they really had a mind to. Some days no ideas may come, other times loads of ideas may come. And I think if you focus on one particular thing that you want to think about, it might be the plot of a trick or a trick that you already have, but you want to have a new presentation or a better presentation or change the objects that you're using. If you can take something tangible and use that free sort of creative brain space time to think in, in depth about it, you'd probably be surprised at how productive that can be. And if you do it on a regular basis, then you'll be amazed, I think, at the number of times that you do actually create something, sometimes a little bit, sometimes a lot. But it'll be, probably be uh, into the position where you have created something rather than just never finding enough time or never feeling you've got the time to actually play around with stuff and come up with something new. Recently, I was thinking about patter and the way that patter acts, and I consider myself obviously to be one of those, have to constantly find ways of talking about the magic that we're doing. And I thought to myself, so what are the different ways that patter can be framed, if you like? And I sort of started to make a list. And I, this is the things I came up with. First of all, there is the descriptive patter. Now, this is used by a lot of people, often when they can't think of anything else to say. 
I have here a box. Let's open the box. The box, as you can see, is empty. That type of thing where you're basically just describing what you're doing. It's a bit like when people do PowerPoint, they're doing a talk and they're using a PowerPoint display. And instead of using the PowerPoint bullet points on the screen as a starting point for whatever it is they're going to be talking about, they simply read the PowerPoint. And I always find that annoying. I think, well, why are you doing that? Why don't you just sit down and just keep changing the, the, the screen every few moments and we'll all read it because we can all see it. So why do you just read it out? So having a pattern that is merely descriptive, I would suggest, all right, yes, we all have to do a little bit of description uh, or instructions. So instruction, you know, here's a pack of cards, please take a card, you know, things like that. It's unavoidable. But if that's all that your patter is, I would say that's probably a little bit lacking. Second type is where the patter consists of a whole sequence of gags, funny comments. This is probably the most common form and that perhaps combined a little bit with descriptive or instructive patter. Put together, two things put together, the gags and if they're used correctly and, and, and in a, the right context can really elevate a performance. And, and most of us, I guess, uh, if we're doing a standard sort of close-up act of some sort or other, close-up magic, would be looking to, to put some comedy in it somewhere. And although there's a certain amount of comedy to be had from certain magic plots, often it's what we say, the asides that we make, the apparent ad-libs to things that the spectators comment about. It's those things that make it entertaining and make what we say actually increase the enjoyment for the audience rather than it just being a boring monotone of here's a box the box is empty the third type of patter is conversational uh, this is something that i quite like and i use this quite a lot i'll often start a trick by saying something like uh, have you ever noticed that whenever you do so and so so and so so and so so and so, so, and so happens why is that you know Asking a question, talking about an everyday occurrence, something that people are very familiar with, and then moving into a trick which either solves a problem or illustrates the point that you've just made. So it's, it's kind of creating a very simple, quick context around the, the objects that you're handling and the magic that you're doing. And this sort of conversational approach where you're kind of chatting with people in, a, in, a, in an informal way. So you're not performing or presenting at them so much as indulging a in a little bit of conversation with them and the magic happens to be part of that conversation and I really like that approach I think it break with close-up particularly it, it's great for breaking down barriers and making the audience feel that it's not you against or in front of them but you're all in this together and you're all discovering things together Next type of patter would be something I'd call sort of pseudo-scientific or uh, sort of thing. In the following experiment, I'm going to try to, where people try to couch it in, in language that we do it, for instance, with ESP tricks. Uh, look at the number of ESP tricks where we start by explaining what the five ESP symbols are. It's hackneyed to us, but actually lay people don't know what they are and might be quite interested to hear that they were apparently used by Dr. Ryan in his experiments on thought transference. So using a scientific type language gives it almost um, our magic a sort of an authenticity or a gravitas, which it might not otherwise have 
if it's used sensitively and well. And then there's a patter that's a little bit challenging. Um, I don't mean being aggressive to the audience, but uh, but setting up a situation, you say, where you are going to prove that something that you explain that would be normally impossible, you're going to try and achieve. There is absolutely no way, madam, that I could possibly know the last four digit digits of your credit card number. And yet I am going to get you to think of those numbers. I am then going to read your mind and attempt to tell you what those numbers are. So you're setting up a challenge. You're setting up a situation. And that's a valid pattern possibility, particularly, I think, for, for mentalists um, who are looking, again, to lend what they do a certain sense of importance and to put into context how difficult what they are about to do actually is. And I suppose the final one is, and I've touched on this already a little bit, is problem solving. Uh, you talk about a situation, a difficulty that we have in our everyday lives, and you say, isn't it annoying when X, Y and Z happens? Well, don't worry, because this is how a magician gets round it. And so, again, you're putting into con your patter puts into context something that the audience is familiar with and which the magic then helps to solve. And I suppose good patter might, at different, depending on the trick, at different times involve several of these elements. And it's the mishmash of those combined with your performing personality which will decide whether you are entertaining and whether your patter adds anything to the, to the magic or whether it simply distracts. One of the most popular plots in magic is the um, magician in adversity comes good type of plot. You know, you go through a, a sequence of, of actions which apparently end badly for the magician. He borrows the banknote, puts in some envelopes, the spectators eliminate all the envelopes except one, all the ones that they've been eliminated have been set fire to. Magician says it, that the one that's been left will be the one with the money in it, and when he opens it up, it's got a piece of paper inside. So it looks like the trick has gone hopelessly wrong. And then, of course, in one way or another, all ends well when the magician sort of turns the tables and it all comes right. And I've often thought, is that actually any better than a, than a, a classic sucker trick? I, I've never liked sucker tricks. I think the, the, the blatant abuse of, if you like, the audience's intelligence, where you deliberately lead them up the garden path and show them that they've been led up the garden path prior to turning the tables on them to make them feel stupid at the end is one of the worst examples of presentation if it's done in the wrong way. You can do sucker tricks, I mean, kids tricks, for instance, some sucker tricks, if they're handled sensitively, where the joke is apparently on you not being able to do something and the child manages to do it, where you turn that round, so it's not the child looking stupid, but actually the magician, which is okay in the kid's eyes, they think that's funny, that's not so bad. But the, where the magician triumphs and the child is, uh, is the one that looks a little, a little bit stupid, and certainly with adult tricks, uh, I, I'm not sure, unless it's handled really well, is this really a, pl a plot or premise that we that we want to have for our magic? Now, you, you can have tricks where things go wrong. I think it's the way that you put it right. Because if you put it right with a na-na, but no, don't worry, because I'm the magician. And shunk, there you go. Everything's put right. 
all that makes you look like is, a, is an idiot. Well, not an idiot. You, you think you're looking good, but actually what's happening is in the audience's eyes, you're looking a bit like a smart aleck. And that's not a very, perhaps a very nice character trait. So I think if we're going to use these classic plots, and I think some of the things from, the, from years ago were more acceptable perhaps than they are now. Maybe I'm being too sensitive about how the audience might be feeling or frightened of these PC times, frightened to upset anybody. It's not so much that. I just don't know whether it's a, a particularly interesting way for an audience to be entertained. If you do an act of six tricks and three of them, you've deliberately sort of apparently led them up the garden path and then turned the tables on them. Selective use of that type of plot and, and, and treated in a sensitive and, and, and done in a right way Yes, I think you can probably get away with it. But when there are so many other types of plot, perhaps to do several tricks of that nature is not a good idea in the first place, is it? So um, have you ever looked at your act and thought, what impact is that? Is this particular trick where I turn the tables and come out all right at the end? How does that leave the audience feeling? I wonder what they they think about me as the performer. Um, Do they like it? Are they surprised by it? Is it funny? Or am I just being, oh yes, you're the clever magician? Food for thought and something for you to think about perhaps too. Well, thank you so much for listening to the October podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the various topics that I've covered this time. It would be marvellous if in a month's time you would come back and listen all over again. And I'll, in the meantime, in my spare time while I'm driving up the motorway, I'll be jotting down and recording some ideas so that next time when I do the podcast, I'll have some topics to talk to you about. In the meantime, have a good month. Bye for now.